Hello, and welcome back to Stories RPG, the podcast where we tell stories better together. And today is another episode of Right Light, where we shine a light on some of the things that we use, some of the tools and tips and tricks that we use to help each other and help ourselves tell better stories. With me today is Dan Hines of Stories Podcast. Hello. a little bit about one of the larger structures in storytelling, the question of how do you make a plot line? Bum, bum, bum. Very important. <laughs> with, with drama, yes. Um, well, I don't know. There's a lot of different, so a lot of people have a lot of different ways of thinking about plot. Um, there's one in particular that a lot of folks learn in school that uh, we hear a lot in the West. And it's it's the uh, the rising action plot line. I think that's what it's officially called. You can look it up. There are all these diagrams. It's a little line, and then it goes up a little mountain, and then it goes down again, and then it levels off. So the classic way that that a lot of people learn how a plot works is there's this first step, which is exposition or introduction, sort of setting the scene. Then there's a moment of conflict, and conflict sparks off that upward line. And create something called rising action, a building momentum towards the peak of that little rising line, which is called the climax, the moment of truth when everything gets decided. And then there's falling action, sort of a resolving downward line. And then a final, a final moment, which is called denouement, if you want to get French about it. But you can also just call it resolution. It's when everything wraps up. So Dan, I don't know. Did you learn this? Do you use this at all in your writing? Um, because it's it's one that never worked for me, and I'm going to talk a little bit about how the game and the podcast use a different approach. But I wanted first to get your thoughts on this classic six-step plotline. Um, yeah, I think it's classic for a reason. I think it works. I think most movies, especially fall into it, books tend to meander a little more, I think, just because there's uh, more room to. But uh, I, think, I think overall it's sound. I don't think it's something you have to pay that close of attention to, though. I sort of think that if you're a good writer and you, this is something I think people learn by osmosis, right? Like everybody who's a writer or wants to make stories, you kind of get the feeling that like you start smaller and you kind of build up and you build up to the end of the story. And the end of the story is the, is the climax, the big exciting stuff's happening or the tense emotional moments or the killer is unmasked or whatever genre you're writing. in. that's the big moment, right? The mystery is solved. Um, and then, the falling action and denouement sort of seem a little redundant. I guess the falling action to me is like the last couple chapters and then the denouement would be like an epilogue almost. But I think it's sort of a sort of in um, instinctive in stories. If you've seen enough stuff, you probably write this way without even learning it. Yeah. You know, that's interesting. I, I agree. I definitely think that we all follow the storylines that we're familiar with and we tend to, we tend to learn to build stories by using all the other stories that we've read and and heard and listened to as examples, right? It's impossible not to channel those. Um, that actually might be part of why I like what's called the four-act East Asian storytelling, sort of cinema storytelling plotline a little better. 
maybe because it sort of breaks a couple of traditions. Now, I know we were talking earlier, and I want to ask you about this. First, let me introduce it to everybody. This is, in fact, the way that if you play the game, Stories RPG at Home, this is the way a scene is set up. And when you're trying to give people tools to help them write stories, it can be difficult and and important to kind of chunk out the different steps to making that rising action, to making that momentum happen. And I found the four-act structure was more useful for that in Stories RPG. So what's the four-act structure called then? Okay. It is technically called the four-act structure. It's all throughout East Asia. It it has its roots in China. Um, I became familiar with it by learning about Japanese stories, uh, in particular, a lot of the movies of a guy named Kurosawa, who wrote a lot of amazing movies. And fun fact, his movie Hidden Fortress was the basis for Star Wars, the very first Star Wars movie. So if you want to go find out where uh, Lucas got all his ideas for Star Wars, go watch Hidden Fortress by Kurosawa Akira. Yeah, a lot of American people ripped him off too. I know a lot of the old famous Westerns were just direct takes on his movies, and he was sort of one of the first widely emulated um, directors from from Asia, right? At least in America, everybody was sort of pulling from his stuff. Yeah, I mean, he's a, he's regarded by most folks in in cinema as being one of the greatest directors ever. Up, up until now. Um, he's still somebody who's taught in every college course. You're going to have to watch a lot of Kurosawa films if you want to learn about how, how films are made. Um, but yeah, the four-act structure that I learned about, they call it Kishotenketsu. And there are four, four elements to that. There's the ki, sho, ten, and ketsu. So ki is your introduction where you set the scene. Sho is where you develop the scene. That means you sort of flesh it out, you build in the details, you build in the engagement of your audience. Then there's the 10. The 10 is is not a climax, it's not a conflict, it's a twist. And I personally really like this structure partly because of the twist. And then the last piece is is called ketsu, which is the resolution, the finish. This is where you you wrap things up. So it's four steps, not six. And they do have some things in common. Yeah, I think, I mean, you can sort of map them roughly uh, one-to-one here. So the four-act structure, it has the intro, the development, the twist, and the finish, right? Mm -hmm. And then if you compare that to the classic sort of American literature method, so the intro is basically the same as the exposition and the conflict. The development is the rising action. The twist would be your climax there, and then the ketsu would be falling action in the denouement, which I sort of agree it, it condenses them nicely into the sort of the more base parts, I think. Well, so here's where the English nerd in me uh, either gets in the way or becomes useful. You can, you can tell me what you think. I find the words conflict and rising action to be loaded. Conflict implies that there's some sort of struggle. I like the word drama a lot, but I'm not so sure about the word conflict because you can have a story in which there isn't necessarily conflict, but things are interesting and you care about the characters. Also, rising action implies there's some sort of, you know, action, right? Whereas development says this isn't about action, it's rather about deepening the story and making it more interesting. So perhaps it's just my my nerdy affection for for words that gets me attached to this this four-piece approach. 
but I, it really works for me. And I can explain how in a second, but I want to give you a chance to jump in and, and give me your thoughts on whether that makes sense, why I, why I feel that way or whether my explanation made sense. So I, I think that sort of gets into like semantics, semantics meaning like just the, the specific meaning of words, right? So to me, conflict and drama aren't really that different. Like, I don't, I think they mean the same thing, but I do agree that, that putting it in a different word, using drama or development instead of conflict does, um, it sort of gives you a broader canvas if you think of it that way. If because conflict can put you into a mindset of like person against person almost. And action to me, it, you know, it carries a lot of weight in stories. If you you're talking about action, you're talking about fists flying and, you know, things crashing through buildings, which, you know, if that's the kind of story you're telling, that's great. But I love development because it suggests that you're deepening the audience's engagement with your world. So I wanted to quickly go through these four, these four movements and how they work in the game and how I use them in the show. And then maybe talk a little bit about where we see them in famous books and movies. Oh, sure. Let's do it. All right. So um, key setting the scene. If you look in the in any of the stories RPG books, whether it's Star Sworn or whether it's Giga City, the first part of a scene is always a paragraph, sometimes even a full page, that you can read aloud that sets up who's in the scene, what's happening in the scene, and gives some descriptions to really get things going. We'll also include a picture, which for uh, for a game that you're playing at home can be a great separate way, a second way to really get immersed. So let me give you an example. This is from Giga City Guardians. If you remember, there were some riots and some, some protests around Tusk Towers after uh, Fred Tusk kind of riled everyone up and suggested that the bricks were going to cause trouble. Well, uh, if you if you play the game, you'll find out that uh, Skitter is in there too. So this is the read aloud from page 30 of Giga City Guardians. The crowd around Tusk Towers is seething with anger. Chants of, no more mutants, echo through the packed square. You're pushed near an alleyway when you hear a strangled yelp. Someone's in trouble. A pack of protesters are grouped up, yelling. One big burly guy has lifted a tiny body. A kid? Up against the wall. Dirty mute, I'ma teach you to stay out of Giga City. So this is, uh, for the game, a way to really set up an intense moment. Um, and I'm trying to give as much as I can emotionally and descriptively to get you into that scene without overdoing it. I want you hooked, but I don't want you knowing everything. This is enough to hopefully get you engaged enough to say, all right, I want to play through this scene. I want to find out what happens. That kid, I need to help that kid out. But it's not so much that you already kind of know everything that's going on. Definitely true in a game. And I think it's even more true when you're doing your personal writing, right? Like you can't judge a book by its cover, but people will judge your book by the first few pages or chapter. You gotta, you gotta hook them. And if you sort of meander, if you kind of drag your feet, you're going to lose people. You just are. You got maybe that first paragraph. You can really sink them in a couple pages at most. You got to get them intrigued. You got to let them know roughly what the stakes are. You just got to get people on board early. And I find both description and dialogue do a really good job for building that intensity. 
So I'm I'm a big fan of using dialogue in my in my key, uh, you know, people talking to give you an idea of who they are, and also descriptions of scenes that show things as dramatic or exciting. You know, getting pushed around by the crowd, crammed into a back alley, hearing a strangled yelp, seeing a tiny body being lifted against a wall. All of these, I'm going for whatever I can get to get you really concerned as players and get you sort of ready to start jumping in. All right, so what's next? So after the key, we've got show, right? The idea of how do you build the scene? In a game, the way you build the scene is with your player's help. So you'll notice in the show, I ask a lot of questions. I'll say, well, what do you want to do with that? Or how would you like to solve this problem? In explore the scene in every one of these uh, layouts for Stories RPG, I always give a few questions and ideas, things for the teller to describe and things for the players to ask. So I have here under explore the scene, I always say the same thing, ask and answer questions, speak as your characters, describe what happens and decide how things turn out. This is just building things up. So I have teller, describe the protesters threats and the smart mouth brick kids back talk. Where's Senora? You'll learn about Senora Sun if you uh, you play the game. The kid hollers, "Get over yourself, jerk face! I didn't do nothing." That's that's you know. So there's a, a a thing there. The kid's red. He looks like a brick. Where did he come from? So there's always a few questions to help help the players kind of wonder about the scene and build it out. You could add also things like one of the protesters looks like they're pulling you know they're they're rummaging in their coat for a weapon. This could get ugly fast. You better get that kid out of here. You can always add bits and bobs like that. But the goal here is make the scene more real, make it more intense, and allow the players to explore a little, to ask questions and come up with ideas of their own. So that's the show, the building the scene. So next is what uh, in in the traditional, um, I guess the traditional plot line would be called the climax. But for me, I really like this idea of of the twist, the surprise. This is where the players make a move. So this is where you can use lines from your story to get up to three dice. And in every one of these scenes, we offer a few different ways that you might try to jump in because every character is going to solve things differently and every player is going to want to solve things differently. So one is get physical. Try to grab the kid, wrestle, run, or climb to escape. There's influence. Calm the mob or get the brick kid to explain what happened. Figure it out. Where's a good escape route? What does the brick kid know? Why is he here? FX. FX is like, you know, special abilities. Use your powers to scare, confound, escape, or limit the mob. Now, the reason I like calling this twist is when you make a move, it should be not because you're worried about succeeding or failing, but because it's going to add excitement to have a random outcome. The goal here for me as a storyteller is, I want this to be the moment where all of us at the table, much like a reader who's reading a story at home, doesn't know what's going to happen next. So when the dice at the table, you don't know for sure if you're going to succeed. You also don't know for sure what will happen as a result. And because of that surprise, you've got that, that tension, right? What's going to happen? That's the twist. It's the fact that you don't have a guaranteed outcome. That's why I really like the idea of twist as opposed to uh, climax. Because 
in a game too, you always need that that same tension you have as a reader or a watcher. I don't know how it's going to go here. And that's a wonderful thing of, you know, that's why that sound of the dice hitting the table is so satisfying. Right. That's why we use dice in general, right? Because you can tell a story together and that's also fun, kind of just take turns. But rolling the dice and trying and failing and kind of rolling with the punches is sort of the fun of a story game, which is why most good story games or all my favorite story games use dice or some cards or some kind of randomizer, right? Yeah, and there are some really interesting randomizers. You, of course, there's other stuff out there. There's one great game called Dread that actually uses Jenga. And you, as you pull the pieces out, you're, you're running the risk of everything falling apart. But it's that, same, it's that same purpose. The mechanics serve to make the storytelling feel not only like a story that you're an author of, but also a story that you're all in and experiencing as an audience together. They allow that lovely surprise moment where you're like, oh, you know, like you didn't see it coming, right? That's great. And that's one of the things that I, I think is kind of unique to story games and role-playing games. Yeah, one of the best parts. And definitely, I do like the terminology of twist over climax. I do think that's a good one. Ooh, I've sold you on it. Sure, sure. I, I, I've always liked it. I just think Twist, I think a lot of people hear it and it's sort of um, the American movie version of Twist where it's like something out of left mm, field right. that like upsets the whole story. And I don't, I don't think that's what it means in this context though. Yeah, no, I actually think of it in terms of that same little line that they have in the rising action. You know, Instead of imagining that that climax is a, a peak of a mountain, it's a little loop-de-loop or a series of little loop-de-loops. It's, it's the surprising movement in the line you weren't expecting that doesn't mean it's like a shocker, but it means that you have that moment of like, oh, wow, that's how it went. So yeah, then that leads you straight into resolution, which is the, 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 the ketsu, right? Triumphs and troubles. And in the stories RPG games at home, you always get a list of these that are ideas. Of course, you're welcome to come up with your own. Um, and it says, describe your move's result. What triumphs or troubles would be cool or make sense? And we have, ow, that guy packs a punch. Lose a heart. Animali's mad. Animali's in the uh, Giga City Guardians. If you've heard of her from the purple, uh, the purple problem, she's awesome. She can shape change. Animali's mad. She turns into a rhino and charges. Now that's a trouble, not a triumph, right? Because if you've got a charging rhino into this crowd, things are going to get worse, not better. If you get two sixes, we have gain a bond. Skitter owes me one. So the kid in that in that uh, in that protest that was Skitter causing trouble out in the crowd, and then a last one: Get a Grip ties protesters up with sticky clothes. Get a Grip is a uh, friction controller who's in the uh, the stories RPG Giga City Guardians game, who is a personal favorite of mine. I've played her in other games; she's awesome. Friction control is a really cool power. Um, but the goal here is think of creative and interesting ways to resolve the scene that really both play off the fiction and also, uh, you know, create a really great narrative. So I like that you kind of finish and resolve it, but you're talking about this kind of, this kind of four part structure as like in the scenes, but it also works for the overarching narrative too. Right. So it works for, to put it in, to put it in book terms, you do it in the chapters, but each chapter you put the chapters together and it has the same structure over the course of the book. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. No. And that's something that you get, you get that rhythm going as a storyteller eventually where 
you know, we do this with the stories RPG with the Giga City Guardians episodes, right? Each episode has to have, you know, a bit of scene setting, a bit of development, a twist or or a, or a surprise, and then a resolution. But the entire story has that arc as well. You know, the first few episodes, you you all were just kind of mucking about and trying to figure out what the heck is going on with Giga City Gold and who is this Tusk guy and wait a minute, Ellipsis is, seems like even worse than Tusk and what's happening here? And uh, there are bricks. And then there's the show where you sort of learn more about what's happening under the city in Flipside and you deepen your understanding of who's involved and what's been happening. And yeah, the twist, would we say the twist has already happened? I think the twist is coming up. Y'all are are coming up on the big twist in episode nine and I don't want to give anything away, but... There is a lot of um, surprise and action, and um, yeah, it's a lot coming. Yeah, I'm really excited for that. Uh, we've already recorded it, just a peek behind the uh, screen here, and it's it came out awesome. I can't wait for you all to hear that one. Ooh, ooh. I, I mean, I, I haven't listened to the finished product yet, so don't spoil it for me. I'm, I'm super stoked. Oh, I haven't listened to it either yet. I know we're editing it now, but I, I was there playing it, and I, I liked it then. So I got very excited. I thought the ending... I don't know. The ending was better than I could have planned it. And I, I always love, this is one of the reasons I really love playing story games. They really are inspiring and they help me with my writing. Uh, it's really true that other people will come up with ways to solve problems and resolve scenes that you never would. And working with people like Scriv and Amanda and Dan, it it always leads to better stories, I feel like, than I can write alone. I always love the way those collaborations resolve and they they feel very satisfying. So let's talk a little bit about where we see this, this plot line uh, happening in popular stuff so that people can get an idea of, of how this rhythm, how this pattern plays out, both at the small level and at that larger level. Yeah. So how would this apply to like a more modern movie? Like uh, all my friends' kids, we're, we're all watching Moana. Like, can you hit me with like a Moana example? Oh, heck yeah. No, that movie's great. Um, okay, so quick Moana example. So key, right? How's the scene set? We start out with a single uh, island, right? And the people of that island, and we get very quickly, and Disney's great at this, they do <laughs> they do character character setup, character introduction with like songs and montages. So you real quick get all of it. You got the little baby wandering off and going next to the ocean, right? Then we've got immediately that goes into Moana growing up and the the song about how she's going to, you know, lead her people and not leave for the sea. And that's the key, right? We set it up. Our hero are, is, a, is a young girl who uh, really wants to travel, really wants to adventure, really finds the sea fascinating, but has a family who is very afraid of the sea and doesn't want her anywhere near it. So that's that's the introduction. You've got the hook, right? There's an emotional hook that desire to, you know, desire to both please your parents, but also feeling like you need your own life. Uh, the desire for adventure versus the, you know, fear of danger. And where does the chicken fit into that? The chicken would be, uh, yeah, that's, that's straight up comedy. Um, they, everybody <laughs> likes to have a comic relief. That's it. The chicken is the skitter plus ape of, uh, of Moana. We'll, we'll do that. A little comic relief. All right. So what's the next one then? What's the rising? Ah. I guess it'd be rising in one. I guess we're talking about what's the development now? So they develop it by giving you this uh, exploration that she goes on where her grandmother kind of helps her understand that 
in fact, uh, their, their people might have come here from far off originally. And that gives her the motivation. There's also this, this troubling, strange disease that's starting to affect some of their, their produce. And she feels like the only answer is to go and save Maui, um, who she knows has the power to restore her island's health. And the only way to do that is to go out onto the open ocean. So that's the the development, right? So she finally gets her nerve up. She uh, she builds this this ship and she takes off. And that's that's where things get twisty, right? So when things get twisty, are you saying when they actually meet Maui? Well, actually, you know, this is interesting. I would say that her entire journey um, to meet Maui, and then you know, there's there's a couple of arcs there, right? Because she getting to Maui is one is one sort of arc, right? And then there's almost another new arc started where you've got the introduction of Maui as a character. Okay, he's going to try to steal her boat and run away, right? And then the ocean helping her, kind of forcing him to work with her, right? That's the development. Okay, now we have a relationship. He's going to help me. I'm going to help him. I have to help him get his hook back. And then the Ketsu is facing off with the crab, right? I love that crab. He's he's the best. Um, I love the actor who gives him voice, and I love the show that they, they made uh, that gave him his start. Um, but yeah, he's, he's awesome. That's uh, what's that Jermaine Clement. He's the best. Yep. Mm-hmm. I, I trust me. I can sing the entire song in the voice. You don't want me to do it, but I would, if I weren't being recorded right now. So you face They face off with the crab, they rescue the hook and that's the resolution. That's the first resolution. Okay. We got the hook, right? So again, we've gone through two little arcs. First little arc is the buildup of her running away resolved by her landing on Maui's Island. Second is meeting Maui, you know, building that weird relationship with him, facing the crab and and feeling like, okay, now we've got a chance, right? So the third little arc is they've now got the heart of Tefiti and we've got the hook. So Maui himself has his powers back. And now the final arc is going to Tefiti's island. Um, so Maui teaches her, this is the, the new arc is started when Maui reveals his background. This is sort of a new a new hook. We deepen our understanding of Maui as a character because he he talks a little bit about his history, why he got salty with humanity, why he stole the heart, how he's always been trying to impress his adoptive parents and never succeeding. And that leads them on the final show where they develop. He teaches Moana the skill to navigate across the open water, which had been lost to her people. And so by giving her that knowledge, they build their relationship even deeper and she becomes a more a more strong leader character. And when they finally get back to, when they finally arrive at Tefiti's island, they, they encounter the vengeful goddess, Teka. And it's only when Moana has, and this is the big twist, right? The big moment when she realizes that Teka is actually Tefiti, who has been corrupted by the theft of her heart. And she restores the heart to Tefiti, who then, you know, regenerates the ocean. And they're able to sail home. And that's the resolution, right? They come back. And then there's even a little hook. I like this because I'm, I'm a big believer in always leave a twist at the end. Leave, leave a little hook. A really good ketsu, a really good uh, resolution leaves a bit of excitement about what might come next. And they do that brilliantly in Moana because at the very end, she's sailing off with her grandmother's 
um, manta ray underneath, right? And all of the uh, the weight of her ancestors' knowledge and leading her people to new islands, um, which is, of course, another exciting adventure awaits, right? It's a lovely little way to both resolve things, but also keep you hungry for more. All right. So uh, any any parting thoughts for the Kishoten Ketsu then? Sort of the general structure. This makes me think of um, Kurt Vonnegut has a thing called the shape of stories that I think mm. we should do next time. That's a totally similar down. similar vibe. Love Vonnegut. A hundred percent in. Uh, yeah. Here's a, a thing to remember. Just in terms of stories, right out the gate, get them interested. When you set the scene up, use description and dialogue. Remember that hook. You got to hook them hard, right? That's the first. So for your key, always give them interesting characters, interesting scenarios, interesting places. Create something they're going to want to chase. For show development, Think about the questions your reader is going to have, the things about your characters and about your scenario that will make them not just interested, but invested to make them care about those characters. So that's why Explore the Scene in Stories RPG always asks you questions about what you want to know, because it wants you to help build that story and deepen your engagement. And then for the, the 10, for the twist, a twist can be a surprising event, it can also be the result of what you try to do. It can be a surprise in the plot. The key here is make make sure that there's a bit of surprise to keep your audience uh, interested, engaged, and sort of uh, enjoying that delightful thrill ride of a good story. And then for the Ketsu, wrapping things up. When you wrap things up, of course you want to give folks the things they want that'll satisfy them, but don't be afraid to include a little bit of, uh, a little bit of, and next time maybe, or mm, it's not all that simple. Um, just to just to allow that spice to continue. I like a lingering line of spice. And you can check out check out the games because they'll really help with plot structure. Uh, if you learn how to write a scene for Stories RPG, it'll be a lot easier to structure stories. It's definitely helped me. Yeah, that's sort of the whole point of these games at the end of the day is to get you thinking creatively, to get you writing, and to just get you out there to hang out with some friends, you know? Heck all yeah. those things together the laughs i have in st- playing this game with y'all are uh, are definitely the kind of belly laughs that i carry with me afterwards it's a good time it's just a lot of fun get out there and play it folks go to uh storiesrpg.com or patreon.com slash stories rpg and you'll find uh stuff there episodes ad free episodes we got some free stuff on the site we got some full books on the patreon we got all kinds of stuff to get you going and uh yeah just a blast Absolutely. All right, y'all. So this has been another episode of Right Light for Stories RPG. Next week, tune in for the the 10 and the Ketsu. Thrilling finale. The incredible final two in the four-act arc. Um, and find out what happens with Ellipsis, with Tusk, with the city, with Flipside, and with the Guardians themselves. We'll see you then. Bye. Bye.